You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Chaucer amuses us and Shakespeare moves us and Dunn charms us. But among English poets, none towers over us quite as John Milton does. From his revolutionary ethical absolutism to his grand, soaring poetic settings, Milton's verse challenges the reader in ways that are genuinely unique. Gordon Teske of Harvard University joyfully sounds the heights and depths of Milton's poetic universe in his aptly titled recent book, The Poetry of John Milton. And the journey through this great body of British poetry is not to be missed. Thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles, Professor Teske. It's a pleasure to be with you and with your audience. Well, very good. As you set out on this project, you lay down the terms of the book. This will be a book not on Milton's biography and not even about his vast body of prose writing, but about his poems. What was your thought process for drawing the boundary there instead of, for instance, including just his longer poetry or even just his English poetry or go in the other direction, his poetry plus his better known prose treatises? Well, I guess I'd say first the poetry is what we care about, and it's why Milton's remembered today. Mm-hmm. It's certainly what I care about most, though I'm fascinated by the prose works as well. The prose works are, of course, mentioned in the book because they're part of Milton's story and, in the end, part of the poetry. Milton's creative life is this coherent story, and that's what makes him easy to teach or makes the poetry easy to teach. It's a continual commentary on his life. Well, your early evaluation of Milton is that while the other English poets have their points of excellence, nobody excels Milton in terms of sublimity and intensity. Since these terms are going to feature so prominently as we talk about the poems, what do you mean by sublimity that makes it different from stimulating or witty or urbane poetry? Well, uh, there's a an entire chapter on the sublime in Paradise Lost on the book, and uh, it's what that poem, Paradise Lost, has been known for since its publication. Mm -hmm. All Milton's poetry strives for the sublime. The sublime is a word that means astounding, overwhelming, even it even designates a sensory overload that makes the mind do extraordinary things to catch up and to overleap the senses. That's why the sublime starts in the senses and ends up in the head. It's a bit of an abstract answer, uh, but I think that we know what the sublime is when we read Milton. There's just this thrilling idealism, this sensational, visionary encounter with the cosmos and with nature that's unlike anything in any other English poet. The closest Mm -hmm. Wordsworth, but it's really Milton is the most sublime of English poets, the most elevated, the highest Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit, because one of the great strengths of this book is your very detailed examination of how these things happen, but talk about a couple of the settings in particular in Paradise Lost that evoke the sublime, because honestly, those were some of my favorite passages in your book. Well, I suppose uh, I suppose the opening of the poem is pretty astounding, and because it's the opening of the poem, it tells us what to expect. Paradise Lost opens in hell, that is, after the 
after the invocation to the muses and the various formal throat clearing that Milton does before getting going in the poem itself, he, uh, after all of that, he gives us uh, a picture of Satan having rocketed down from heaven after his defeat in the battle of heaven and uh, then rising up on the lake of hell and looking about him rather like a periscope to see this astonishing place that he's fallen to. And the verse is, uh, the verse in which Milton describes both his fall and the horrors of hell itself is uh, sensuously overwhelming and simply astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether I should give an example, but uh, it begins with, Him the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky, with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire, who durst defy omnipotent to arms. Nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal men, he with his horrid crew lay vanquished, rolling in the fiery gulf, confounded though immortal. And it's just a passage like nothing else in English poetry. It's a, it's a tone or sound like nothing else in mm-hmm. English poetry. And, and moreover, there's a, there's a sense of scale there that's really dizzying. And I think you brought that out nicely that in that very same scene, you get this sense of vastness. And then just a few lines later, the poetic narrator says, it's as if they were ants marching along a path. Yes. Yes. The, the game of scale belongs very anciently to the sublime. There was a treatise on the sublime written in Greek in antiquity. And the author mentions that, the, the sublimity of Homer is captured in such moments as when uh, one of the gods in a chariot takes a single stride in the chariot, which takes the god out of the cosmos altogether. Uh, it's, it's precisely that effect that Milton is going for in Paradise Lost. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's backtrack a little bit to Milton's early poetry. And your examination of those early poems, especially the Nativity Ode, does not have Milton looking backwards to classical mythology to mine it for timeless truth like an allegory might. But instead, you say he presses forward, and to use your term, he captures those myths. He presses them into the service of his Protestant and Republican calling. What difference does that make when we look at Milton's use of classical myth? That's a very central question you're asking. Like every great poet, Milton knew that he had to draw on the resources of the past. He was very sharply aware of it. But as a revolutionary and a Christian, and perhaps I should emphasize for this point as a revolutionary, Mm -hmm. he felt he had to look to the future and not become imprisoned by the values of the past or even by the culture of the past. There's always a danger uh, of becoming imprisoned by a kind of reverence for the culture of the past. When we speak of influence, tradition, and so forth, we're unconsciously attributing a higher value to the past. I felt the metaphor of capture, and also of mining, another one I use, the metaphor of capture was closer to the truth in Milton's case. You mine something to build something new. So there's a, a way in which Milton wants to strip the most of the myths of the past of their any original meaning and make them um, reduce them to a material state so that he can make them say new things mm-hmm. can you I'll oh, go ahead go ahead sorry 
Well, it's just it just occurred to me that uh, something I draw attention to the book in, in the book is that it's there's something aesthetically exciting about the very violence of that relationship with the past. We're used to thinking of poets' relationships with the past being uh, uh, learned and reverent to past culture. Milton's is more violent and exploitative, and there's an excitement to that in reading mm-hmm. Paris Lost. Very good. Well, one of those details that you note as you examine Nativ- Nativity Ode is that Specifically, Apollo, the god of order and the god of poetry, is among those gods who get expelled at the birth of Christ. Talk a little bit about this image and how important it is as young Milton wrestles with those classical traditions. Mm. Well, from the beginning, Christianity itself, and Milton is certainly a Christian poet or believes he's one, from the beginning, Christianity had a split view of the classical tradition. It was both demonic and indispensable, as I guess it still is. And Milton inherited this split view. One of his favorite uh, fathers of the church was Gregory of Nazianzus, and he said that the classical tradition, we take, you use the classical tradition the way you get medicines from certain poisonous serpents. In a way, that was Milton's split view as well. I think that it's um, one of the most... So this split view of the classical tradition in Milton, this, this struggle with how to view it, it's one of the most... It's usually thought as one of the most original things about him, but I think it's one of the most traditional. So that in this early poem, in the Nativity Ode, which is his first real masterpiece, he takes a more demonizing view of the classical tradition. Mm-hmm. And do that again later in life in Paradise Regained. But in the end, it's for him rather like hating your own flesh. He was saturated in the classical tradition. Well, very good. Well, one of the things about this book is that it really does span the entirety of, of Milton's career. So I, I could talk about Nativity Ode for an hour, but I, I, need, I need to move on. When you turn to the poem that we shall not call Comus, you schematize the career of that work in three phases. And I want you to talk about this schema for a little bit. You say that first the work is a hidden treasure performed once and only for a small audience and then done. Then the work becomes a reproduction, a poem presented as a poetic text rather than an event. And then finally it becomes a tradition cast broadly to a waiting literary culture. This this resonated with me not just for a mask presented at Ludlow Castle 1634, but it struck me as something that was true of Marlowe, Shakespeare, so many other works of the period. Uh, how did you arrive at this schema? And talk to us about how it speaks specifically to, to a mask. I almost called it Comus. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you, you're sharp to see that the origin of that schema, that three-phase schema for describing the artwork, preceded my work on, on Comus. And really was developed while I was teaching a course on the concept of the artwork. What I mean to say in that schema is that there are really, in considering the artwork as a cultural phenomenon, we need to think of it in three stages. The first, as you said, is a treasure, which means literally something hidden, hidden Mm -hmm. away, statomologically. The second I call a monument because it's something that is meant to be remembered and seen by others. 
but still hasn't entered more dynamically and actively into culture. And the third is uh, a tradition, that is when the work enters into tradition and there's a work, there's scholarship on it and a sense of progressive knowledge about it rather than uh, simple admiration. In the case of Comus, it was originally a performance and the performance itself is something that scholars have labored very hard to recover. Uh, after that, it was a printed text because the person who directed the performance and wrote all the music for it was tired of writing it out by hand because so many people wanted a copy of it. And uh, finally, it was printed in Milton's poems of 1645. That's a second printing. And after that, of course, it entered into tradition as into tradition as part of Milton's oeuvre that's been commented on for all these years since. Now, let me ask you this. I mean, do you think a a similar schema does any work after the advent of mass printing and the culture of the novel and things like this, or is this something that is especially relevant for the moment of the English Renaissance? Well, I conceived it as a general theory, and it does. It is for me okay. a theory of the of the artwork. Um, an example I use in the book is the caves, uh, the cave paintings of Lascaux, and the mm-hmm. reason it shows those. Um, Magdalenian cave paintings is because they're some of the oldest works of art that we know, and uh, they are, they are, you can't, if you go to them today, you can't actually see the, the caves themselves. They're sealed off, except for a few specialist scholars and preservators, but a reproduction of them has been built nearby, so as a tourist, you can go and see the reproduction of them. But of course, scholarship on them is, a, is that third phase uh, where mm-hmm. they into a tradition of art, to a narrative of human art from the earliest times. So it's really a general theory of a general theory of the artwork that I found to be particularly useful for talking about Milton's mask at Ludlow Castle or Comus, as it's popularly known, mm-hmm. because that work is uh, because the work remained a kind of event. It remained stuck in the first phase, and there was some difficulty getting it from the, from the pure occasion that it was into something more permanent. Mm-hmm. Other like fireworks, another comparison. Right, right. That makes some sense. And, and you know, it, it occurs to me, uh, you know, I'm going to be teaching some Aeschylus this fall, and it occurs to me that I'll probably borrow that to talk to my students about the phenomenon of the Athenian tragedy as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought it was a fascinating schema, and I, like I said, I plan to use it. That's a wonderful way to use. That's a wonderful instance uh, to apply this work, that kind of thinking about the work. Very good. Well, I want to stick with the mask for another moment. Uh, another argument you make is that Milton shares with Karl Marx a fundamental conviction that human goodness, worth the name goodness, should revolutionize the world, or to borrow Augustine's term, the seculum. Talk for a moment about that process by which this conviction comes to grip Milton's poetry especially in the move from Nativity Ode to the Mask? Well, uh, if poetry does, looks to the past, which in a sense the Nativity Ode and the Mask both do, if poetry looks to the past as it traditionally does, it's also about preserving the values of the past nostalgically, as in 
Homer or Virgil, both of them think about ancient times as being better than present times. Mm -hmm. And they can only envision a better world insofar as we are able to imitate the values of the past, to reproduce the values of the past. The idea of new values, new thinking to improve the world, it just doesn't belong to the very conservative vision of Homer and Virgil. Mm -hmm. There's something conservative about all poetry, that all major poetry, which must build itself out of the material remains of the past. So if poetry tries to look, as Milton's does, towards the future, then it's really about changing the world for the better. Mm-hmm. Perhaps in Milton's case, with God's help. And that's what makes poetry prophetic. Prophetic poets are rather rarer than among great poets, the prophetic ones are rather rarer and not always so successful as Milton. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. One of, one of the comparisons you draw is between Dante's vision of an eternity by which you must judge historical events and then the very strong historicism of Milton. I mean, is this one of those instances where Milton's historicism is showing up? Yes, uh, in this third phase of his career, which I've uh, designated transcendental engagement, uh, Mm -hmm. and has moved beyond uh, pure transcendence, uh, which is what he shows in his early work, and which you could identify with Dante as well, um, approximately, which is simply that the point of poetry is to get out of this world, or to show us the way out of this world into Mm -hmm. a better world, into heaven. Thus forgetting this world or not caring so much about this world. Now, it could never be said that Dante didn't care about this world, but uh, the next phase of Milton's career is one of engagement with the world in itself and a desire to really change this present world and to change it now through revolution. And to some extent that's there in Dante, but in Milton it's a pronounced second phase of his career. The third Mm -hmm. phase is called transcendental engagement, where... He's both engaged and transcending the world at the same time, but transcending it in a new and quite different way. Transcendental is used almost in a Kantian sense for uh, principles that stand a little bit apart from the world but can be turned back on the world like like tools or instruments for transforming the world in the long term. Mm -hmm. And for Kant, of course, that is the proper role of reason. It's not to describe the world but to evaluate the world yes so all right all right i wish i could talk about any of these poems for an hour alone and certainly the mask we could do but we do have to press on lycidas as you read it is the work of a young virtuoso this is a demonstration of erasmus's ideal of rhetorical copia that unfolds both the cosmic redemptive vision of christianity but it does it with the urgent energy of pagan poetry. What do we see in this younger version of Milton, because this is still early in his poetic career, that foreshadows the great Restoration poet? And what sorts of things fade as the master of the theological sublime emerges later? Well, that's a very interesting interesting question, because I think what emerges in Lycidas and then disappears in Milton's poetry later is personal anguish and artistic struggle. Along with personal anguish goes something like uncertainty, a most uncharacteristic emotion for Milton. (laughs) 
but enlisted us at least personal anguish and artistic struggle. Those things really disappear pretty much after Lissadas, but they return again. Uh, at least the personal anguish returns in Milton's last work, Samson Agonistes, mm-hmm. perhaps the sense of artistic struggle. Mm-hmm. He just didn't seem to find anything very difficult as far as concerned <laughs> after after Lycidas, or at least he wasn't letting us see how difficult he found it if he did. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, Lycidas has, you know, a few very moving per- passages of personal pathos, but what sorts of things in the, in the lines of that poem do you see as manifesting that uncertainty? Alas, what boots it with uncessant care to tend the homely slighted shepherd's trade and strictly meditate the thankless muse. Were it not better done as others use to sport with Amaryllis in the shade or in the tangles of Nehera's hair. Fame is the spur that the clear spirit doth raise, that last infirmity of noble mind, to scorn delights and live laborious days. But the fair guerdon, when we think to find and burst forth into sudden blaze, comes the blind fury with the horrid shears and slits the thin-spun life. So in that passage, Milton is saying, what's the point of striving to be the greatest poet in the world, uh, to spend all your life laboring to get ready for such a task? For Milton really had the ambition of being the greatest poet in the world. What's the point of doing all of that if you're going to be cut off before you're ready? You've wasted mm-hmm. all your life in ceaseless labor for one purpose, to be a great poet, but you're suddenly cut off in your prime the way Lysidas was. There's a sense both of the effort and struggle to create poetry, but also principally here the sense of personal, personal anguish. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing the psychologically and emotional strain that Milton had to go through in order to be as superb as he was. Later in the poem, for example, in the long and absolutely gorgeous floral catalog that he unleashes, he's, he's showing us an example of pure poetry, and of, it's, it's really a rhetorical display. I sometimes call it the, the poem's guitar solo. It's, <laughs> you know, a spectacular virtuosic display, but it's all smashed at the end as, as useless. Let our frail thoughts dally with false surmise. It's all false. It's all glitter. It's worth nothing. I, me, whilst thee the waves and sounding seas wash far away. There's the sense that death renders all artistic effort in the end pointless. I don't think Milton really, in his poetry, touched bottom like that again. Hmm. Fascinating. The middle section of your book deals with uh, Milton's period of what you call engagement, uh, political engagement, really. And you give some just excellent readings of his shorter poems from that middle period. Uh, I'm going to be the tyrant right now and just pick one of them for you to talk about. Uh, Talk our readers through when I consider how my light is spent and the way that it leaves a reader both with emotional resolution and intellectual tension. Well, it's one of Milton's most famous short poems. It's a sonnet, sometimes titled On His Blindness. At a young age, around 42, Milton became totally blind. Uh, He devoted his life not only to being the greatest poet in the world, but 
feeling that part of being the greatest poet in the world was serving God. That is, he would be the greatest poet in the world because he would uh, be as technically great as his predecessors, including Homer. But he would also be even greater because he would be serving the true God. He was very interested in the parable of the talents, and he saw himself as being given, as he was, enormous talents, and that he uh, should use them entirely for God's service. And then he's struck blind uh, and writes this poem in which he is simply reflecting on the fact. If I may, I'll read the poem. Please do. About the time. When I consider how my light is spent ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Well, let me go to the nub of this poem when I consider how my light is spent. The phrase or the question, does God exact day labor, light denied? Or doth God exact day labor, light denied? I fondly ask. Mm -hmm. To me, it doesn't seem a fond question. It seems a perfectly reasonable question. But it doesn't seem so to the poet. It's, it's the moment at which an honest reader parts company with the poet so that the poet goes somewhere the honest and ordinary reader wouldn't go. But then he takes us along with him anyway to somewhere profound. You can't be profound by being reasonable. You have to shock and startle. And that's what I think he does in the poem. He questions God, how do you expect me to work for you when I work for you with my intellect, with my mind? And that requires the eyes. It seems a perfectly reasonable question to ask. But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. At this moment in his life, Milton is saying, in fact, everything I've been striving to do in the service of God has a certain uh, arrogance to it. And I'm being taught that my arrogance is pointless. God doesn't need anything from me. He has to accept that almost unbearable fact in order to move on to the great poise and confidence that come at the end of the poem. Mm -hmm. They so serve who only stand and wait. Standing and waiting is not, of course, uh, lying down and taking a rest. It's standing at attention like uh, a soldier. He's a very soldierly poet, so he's waiting for the next command and not trying to tell God as were what, what sort of work he does best and what instruments he needs to do it. Mm -hmm. 
And what I found fascinating about your treatment of this poem is that you treat the prior question, namely, what does it even mean or what sense does it make to say that one serves God in the first place? And it's fascinating because, you know, it strikes me as a, a variation on the, the old Euthyphro problem. You know, it's, but instead of, you know, does God love what is good because it is good, it's, you know, does an act constitute service to God because God needs served or for some other reason? So I, I talk a little bit about that prior question. The comparison of the Euthyphro is excellent. Uh, the paradox of service is is simply this, that we are God's creatures. From Milton's point of view, we are created by God, which means that we are devoted to the absolute service of God. We're God's creatures. The only way we can reflect this fact back at God is by serving him. There are a number of ways to do this, with praise or with action in the world, uh, or with asceticism. But the, in the end, it's of the very nature of service that when you perform it, it's performed to fulfill a need. You and I are university teachers, so we know something about service and about mm-hmm. the demands <laughs> for service and the reasons always given, if a reason ever needs to be given, is this has to be done. And if you don't do it, nobody will, and then it won't be done, and yet it has to be done. Therefore, serve. Serve for us is always... Uh, to some extent compelled, even if it is we who are doing the compelling, who are, who, that is, even if it's our own conscience that's doing the compelling. But what happens when that need is taken away? God doth not need man's work. Uh, how is it you're supposed to serve God? That seems to me the paradoxical question of Milton's life, and he returns to it very powerfully in Samson Agonistes. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. In the middle of this book, you dedicate a sizable chapter to Milton's influence on the English Romantics, and you note that there is a definite distance between Milton's own project and the uses to which the Romantics put him. So, I mean, if before Milton was capturing the ancients, now the Romantics are capturing Milton. Whereas Milton wanted to bring the ancients to completion by bringing them into the orbit of biblical truth, the Romantics wanted their poetic master to run beyond biblical dogma. Talk to our listeners about this chapter. Talk about the ways that that tension has played out in English poetry in their moment and even beyond their moment. All right. The Romantics chapter is in the middle section of the book, which is the section about engagement, because in effect the Romantics were attracted to Milton as an engaged poet, a political poet, and a revolutionary poet, a morally indignant uh, poet. But aesthetically they were attracted to the Milton of Paradise Lost, who's a rather different sort of poet. Now it's been a commonplace of criticism. What I wanted to show is that the Romantics were focused on the engaged Milton, but to some extent were uh, falsely conscious of that engagement as being part of Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes, that is, the great works of the third phase of Milton's career. We're all really romantics today, so it matters to us. Um, We see the world as the romantics saw the world, and we treat religious questions, or let us say spiritual questions, as subjective and a matter of personal choice. 
but Milton was a convinced Christian and a deep classicist. And that makes a far greater gulf between him and the Romantics than has been admitted formerly. Formerly, I think, critics have been interested in accepting the Romantics' own sense that they are part of a tradition extending from Milton. But none of the Romantics was both a Christian and a classicist. They didn't have to be. They didn't, they didn't have a responsibility to be, but they were something quite different because the world had changed. So those factors in Milton are very different from what we see in the Romantics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it makes uh, uh, everyone, starting with the Romantics themselves, has tried to see continuity from Milton to them. But it's interesting that they all rejected him in the end, uh, or in Blake's case, had a huge public fight with him. <laughs> Maybe Wordsworth didn't reject him, come to think of it, but uh, Wordsworth was at his worst when he was trying to write like Milton. Mm-hmm. And that best when he was discreetly stealing from Milton. <laughs> but you know, Keats wrote his Keats wrote his greatest poems, the poems he's remembered for when he quite self consciously turned away from Milton. Mm-hmm. I did to have nothing further to do with him. Very good. Well, now we get to the part that I've been waiting for, Paradise Lost. If the Iliad is about wrath or rage, and if the Aeneid is about a heroic man and his weapons, Paradise Lost is all about disobedience. Take a little bit of time here to tell our listeners about the character of disobedience in this grand poem and how it works through some of its major parts. All right. What I would like to before I'm going to take that question very seriously in the issue of disobedience and really um, consider why disobedience would be a great subject. But let me say first that uh, the the epic subject of the Iliad, wrath, is uh, about the best word that that poem could begin with. It's the first word of the poem. Mm -hmm. But the Iliad is about so much else as well, and. it's about moral seriousness, for example, moral seriousness within its own terms. And I think that we could say that Paradise Lost is in many ways about moral reflection. Milton chose the story of Adam and Eve to reflect upon because it was a way of seeing human nature before the beginning of history and considering human nation, human nation, excuse me, considering human nature in its very origin, in this uh, pure and originative state. Thus, the disobedience of Adam and Eve becomes, for Milton, the cause of all of history. If you want to explain to yourself why the English Revolution failed, as Milton surely did, you could go back to various events in the 1640s or in the 1630s or in the 1620s. But because of this, transcendental approach to moral questions he was taking in the later phase of his career, he decided to go back to the beginning of everything. It's Mm -hmm. an extremely radical approach, radical in the sense of going back to the root. But as for disobedience, why is disobedience a great subject? Uh, It's not a word that sounds well in our ears nowadays, Um, but Milton is speaking of disobedience to the very principle of one's being. That is, as I said before, Milton believes that we are all creatures, which is to say we are all created by God. And as creative, creative beings, 
we have to remain finally obedient to our Creator. And the Creator, the first thing He does is give us give us freedom, including freedom to be disobedient, so that disobedience and obedience become moral questions for us, and they become moral choices. Mm-hmm. I think that that subject is a greater one than, say, even for, for us today than, say, Roth. Consider the First and Second World Wars and the causes of those enormous human catastrophes in the 20th century and other enormous human catastrophes. But I want to consider especially those because uh, there was a sense in which uh, there was a sense in which it, they were not caused by wrath. They were caused by various forms of evil calculation mm-hmm. of disobedience to what's best in our nature. So there's a sense, I think, in which disobedience, though it's a more cerebral theme, disobedience to what's best in us, is uh, a, p- a powerful epic subject for the modern world. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting, too, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to draw on some of the work that I did for my own dissertation, but it's interesting because in the earliest, in terms of the story's timeline, not in terms of placement in the poem, but the earliest scenes with Satan have him simply disobeying. There's no sense that there's an there's a prior emotional state that led to disobedience. It's simply that Satan is the figure that disobeys. So it's it's interesting that you know it it is a it's a disposition of the entire being. You're right, uh, and although it does you know threaten to become abstract, it does encompass the passions and the will as well as the intellect, I would, I would, I would argue. I mean, do you think that that's a decent take on things? Absolutely. Milton's talking about man's first disobedience, and he's talking about Adam and Eve in particular, and he mm-hmm. differentiates the ways in which they violate the principle of their being and, uh, and thus initiate the catastrophe of history. Mm-hmm. So, very, what you're saying is very true. Um, in the case of Eve, her her will gets the better of her reason, the will to power. Mm-hmm. Eve, is, Eve is the Nietzschean of the poem. And, <laughs> uh, Adam is the romantic lover of the poem. That is, his appetite for Eve, his desire to be with her, gets the better of his will, which because his reason is undeceived. He knows what he's doing is quite wrong. Eve is deceived. Mm-hmm. The, well, the, the moral calculus Milton goes through in describing the fall of Adam and Eve is fascinating for its uh, subtlety. You'll, you won't find anything like it in, in Homer, of course, but not even in, in Virgil or Lucan. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a moral subtlety that we think of as belonging to modern literature, to say mm-hmm. Henry James. I was just looking at the golden bowl the other day, looking at some scenes I'd remembered and thinking how much it's like Paradise Lost, how much Paradise Lost helps us to read James's The Golden Bull, because it's about very, uh, about these subtle interpersonal moments where we, almost without noticing it, go over a moral cliff. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what's fascinating about the character of disobedience in Paradise Lost, is that 
our temptation as moderns is to take the term disobedience and make it a one-dimensional reductionistic sort of criterion. But you argue in this book, and quite convincingly, that disobedience is a fragmentation of the moral will uh, that is very modern in its analysis. Talk, talk a little bit about that, that very modern character of Milton's disobedience. Well, as I said, it's not a particularly, it's, it's not a word that is particularly in favor with us. In fact, uh, one of the great American essays was entitled Civil Disobedience. Yes. Uh, read by <laughs> a high school student in America. So we're in, we're, um, in a revolutionary culture. We're inclined and disposed to think of disobedience as a good thing. And Milton would agree because he was a revolutionary himself. He was very far mm-hmm. from obedient man he broke the law all the time and uh, and uh, of course ju- justified the um, the you might say disobedience you could even say illegal um, execution mm-hmm. of Charles the first so there were no there was no worldly sense in which Milton show, showed himself particularly inclined to uh, humble humble obedience he meant disobedience of your highest principles, your highest right. ideals. Mm-hmm. So that finally, disobedience really means not being true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the ways that uh, Paradise Lost departs from the epic tradition is that it insists on origins instead of including only the middle of things. Talk a little bit about the implications of Milton's insistence on origins for the poetry of Paradise Lost. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you brought that up because I was mentioning it a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Explanation by going back to the origin. Let me say something first about the tradition of writing epic poems. Um, Horace, in his Ars Poetica, said... Uh, the thing you must be sure that you do not do when you write an epic poem is to go back to the to the twin egg, as he put it. Hmm. He was talking about the two eggs that Leda uh, bore to Zeus, which eggs contained uh, Clytemnestra and Helen in one of them, and the Dioscuri in the other. And this was thought to be the origin of the Trojan War. And Horace's point is that if you go back in the world of myth to what you take to be the originative moment for the, uh, the Trojan War, you'll never write a good poem. You'll write a long, boring recitation of myths. Mm-hmm. And every epic poet, pretty much after Horace, has taken that to heart, at least anyone who could read Horace. And Milton himself took it to heart all through the middle of his life, and suddenly he rejected it and decided uh, that the Christian tradition and the biblical tradition is all about the beginning and the end, archaikaitelos, uh, Genesis and the Apocalypse, and that to understand the end, you had to understand the beginning and vice versa. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden ends up in the uh, heavenly city in the last book of the Bible, in the Apocalypse. So for Milton, history can only be understood by going back to the, the origin, to the Garden of Eden, for... Um, to attain, as I was saying before, the, the moral clarity of vision that will be a key to understanding all human history thereafter. Mm-hmm. Well, and it plays, too, into the transcendent approach you were mentioning earlier uh, by situating his epic at the very beginning of things 
he offers a reading of history that really has a, I, I won't say a simplistic because it's not, but certainly uh, a very pointed and a very directed take on the course of human history. Can you talk a little bit about the relations between origins and historical development in this poem? Well, on the face of it, uh, when we study history, we think of it, at least the study of causes in history of events, mm -hmm. events, such as I mentioned, the First World War or the Second World War. We imagine that an enormous, uh, complicated um, dramatis personae must be assembled first, and a great number of events must be put together before we can get any persuasive sense of what brings about any particular event within history. So on the face of it, there's something almost delightfully naive about saying all of history can be explained by two suburbanites in the nude in a garden at the beginning <laughs> of history, uh, and that they're eating a single piece of fruit forbidden to them by their creator uh, has in it, like, like a seed, all of the, all of the moral significance that is to follow in the catastrophe we call history. There's a passage here. You, you mentioned the prose works earlier. There's a crucial passage in Milton's great prose work, Area Pagetica, where he says, it was, out, it was from out the rind of one apple tasted that the knowledge of good and evil, as two twins cleaving together, leaped forth into the world. For Milton, all of history is a struggle between good and evil, and of course, uh, a struggle even to understand what good is in the fog of historical circumstance. And he's saying that before the eating of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, we always had a clear sense of what good and evil, of what each is. Mm -hmm. Once the fruit is eaten, moral confusion comes out into the world. It was from out the rind of one apple tasted that the knowledge of good and evil leaped forth into the world as two twins cleaving together. We've been trying to separate them ever since. It's a very moral, it's not an historian's vision of history, it's a very moral vision of history, that finally the problems of history are moral problems. Mm -hmm. They understood in this instance, transcendentally. To understand them transcendently would, of course, mean looking at them from the point of view of heaven. But to understand them transcendentally is to look at them from a point of view that is much closer to where we are in the Garden of Eden with real people there at the outset of history. Mm -hmm. Well, when you develop this, you make a suggestion that fascinated me, so I want you to talk a little bit about your suggestion that Milton might be the philosophical forerunner of Friedrich Nietzsche. Talk a little bit about that ethics of decision that you explore in this book and the ways that it departs from Spencer and his Aristotelianism and anticipates modern existentialist thought. I see. Yes, well, um, with decisionism, we come back to that word uh, disobedience, except mm -hmm. that um, Nietzsche and Milton are almost mirror images of uh, each other, that is, uh, they, which means that they reproduce the same structure, which is a, um, a yes or no, a digital either or structure, it's yes or no. Um, if all ethics is simply a choice between disobedience and obedience, all ethics is reduced to a decision, which is a great 
simplification of ethics from Spencer's time and, of course, from Aristotle, on whom Spencer depended. Spencer had a much subtler and more nuanced view of the ethical life uh, as a matter of balancing the claims, balancing claims that are incompatible but uh, worthy, and trying to see which need ranks higher in which situation. The highly subtle process in which there's a considerable amount of trial and error involved. For Milton, with as a more decisionist figure, there should be a right and wrong answer to every moral question. It's not a matter of weighing the relative good and relative evil of decisions in the flow of events. Instead, it's there is a way of discerning what's, what's right and what's wrong, what's obedient to the truth of your nature and what's disobedient to that truth. For Nietzsche, I think um, that decisionism leads to the idea that disobedience is what brings forth the Superman because disobedience is a way of refusing to acknowledge that there is anything higher than the self, uh, not just God, but of course, um, but of course traditional morality. Mm-hmm. Which, which Nietzsche perhaps rightly regarded as the the skirts of God, as it were. Right, right, or the shadow of the Buddha from the gay science. Yes, indeed. Well, very good. I want our listeners to hear your take on Adam and Eve before we're done here. You've mentioned them before, obviously, since we're talking about Paradise Lost, but you make two big claims that I think are worth hearing. First of all, you claim that Adam is never successfully tempted but disobeys knowingly and willingly. And from the first claim follows the second. Eve falls first, but Adam falls farther. Now, your readings here defy conventional accounts of Milton's gender politics, so tell us how you get there. Well, certainly conventional accounts of Milton's gender politics need some readjustment. Uh, they, They may not be being overturned by these statements, but they certainly need some readjustment. First of all, I'd say Adam is, not only is Adam not successfully tempted, he isn't tempted at all. Uh, Who tempts Adam? He seems to tempt himself, and that's the most we can say. Mm -hmm. Then we never see him tempt himself. He simply decides in an instant like that, the moment he perceives that Eve has fallen, he doesn't believe any of the nonsense that she speaks to him, but he decides already. He says, certain my resolution is to die with thee. We've never heard him make that resolution. We've never heard him consider for an instant that he might refuse to eat the fruit. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a decision that has taken place even before we see it happen. Mm-hmm. Now, for that reason, Milton sees, Milton sees Eve, as, first of all, as deceived, but also as searching for power so that her will is getting the better of her reason. That's why it's possible to deceive her, because her reason is defeated by her own will to power. And she's led through that mistake by Satan, very skillfully led through that mistake by Satan. So for Milton, although she falls first, uh, she's far less culpable because she has been uh, she has been deceived. And moreover, her reason for falling is if I can put it this way, inherently more noble than Adam's reason for falling. Um, she wishes, she has, the, um, she falls because of an exertion of the will, which is a higher faculty in Milton's psychology 
than the appetite, whereas Adam falls because he simply can't bear the thought of not being with Eve. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's something uh, lower, appetitive, and more abject about Adam's fall. It's less noble. The reasons for it are less, less noble. Uh, and it's also instantaneous and without temptation. He's self-tempted, as it were. So uh, that's what I mean by Adam falling farther. As you know, uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a certain amount of, especially the Christian tradition, I suppose, uh, there's a certain amount of um, misogyny based on the idea that Eve is the radix malorum, the root of all evil. The woman mm -hmm. is the root of all evil. And I think Milton wanted to counter that tradition by making a scene in which, though Eve falls first, which she must because Milton is following the biblical account, the fall of Adam is much more abject than Eve's is. Mm -hmm. He tries to weasel out of responsibility for it. Eve doesn't. She immediately admits it. Right. I saw and I took and I ate. Yep. And I, I misquoted he, that, I realize, but... <laughs> uh, she, sa she says, the serpent me beguiled and I did eat. There you go. There you but go. And Adam is asked, he says, well, you gave me this woman and she's been nothing but a headache. Yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's all her fault. <laughs> so, uh, I used to uh, teach at Cornell University, and every time at a hockey game, the uh, uh, Cornell scored against the opposing team, uh, all the students would stand up and point their fingers at the goalie and shout, it's all your fault, it's all your fault. Oh. <laughs> That's uh, essentially what Adam does when, uh, when, he has to, when he's confronted by God, oh. <laughs> why he ate of the fruit. It's all her fault. And listeners, this is why we record these interviews. You never would have connected hockey and Paradise Lost, but now you have. <laughs> well, I want to turn to your final chapter. You talk about a really a return to transcend, transcendental engagement in Paradise and Samson Agonistes that seems to slip away from Paradise Lost in books 11 and 12. Talk a little bit about what that term means in Milton's career and what difference it makes in this final phase of his poetry. Okay, well, uh, as I was saying, the book holds that Milton moves in his poetic career through these three stages, each mm -hmm. one flipping out of its predecessor by reaction. In the first stage, Milton's poetry wants to get out of the world and into heaven. In the second stage, he reacts to that view rejects it and decides that poetry is about engagement with this world in order to change it. The engagement's direct and political. And then in the third and final stage, uh, we have what looks like a compromise between transcendence and engagement, but what is really an improvement on them both, taking them higher. And I call that, as I mentioned, transcendental engagement. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, I'm beating myself a little. That's all right. On the one hand, transcendental engagement avoids the otherworldly transcendence of the first stage, which simply gives up on this world and, incidentally, on most of the people in it. And on the other hand, transcendental engagement avoids narrow and limited political struggles, for all such struggles look narrow and limited to Milton after his revolution collapsed. 
So transcendental engagement finds the abstracted and hence transcendental principles of action and puts those to work in the world with a view to a more gradual but complete transformation of the world for the better. That, I think, is the approach of Paradise Lost, which nevertheless is focused on the scene, of, on the transcendental scene of the Garden of Eden. I don't think Milton was overly attached to a literal, um, to, a, to a physical belief in the Garden of Eden. It was simply there in the Bible, and we were expected to take it as a way of explaining history, as God's gift to us as a way of explaining history. Nevertheless, the scene is pretty remote from the way we live, and so Milton wrote two more works, and they're very great works in my view, although they'll never be as popular as Paradise Lost, Mm -hmm. Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes. Both of those works are in the middle of history. Uh, Paradise Regained is about Jesus Christ's temptation by Satan in the wilderness, which Milton takes to be the scene on which the entire movement of history will depend in the future. So it's a decisive moment in history when Jesus confronts Satan in the wilderness. Of course, for uh, conventional Christianity, the decisive moment in history is not Jesus' confrontation with Satan in the wilderness, a minor episode in the Gospels. It's his crucifixion and resurrection which changes history. But for Milton, Jesus' dying on the cross for our sins is a victory over the consequences of the fall, but it's not a victory over the cause of the fall. Mm-hmm. The cause of the fall is temptation and moral confusion. And for Milton, the decisive episode, therefore, is when Jesus in the wilderness alone has to face the prince of this world who will try to tempt him and to induce moral confusion in him. And Jesus shows enormous strength of mind and adherence to principle, explicitly contrasted with Adam's, in order to make the possibility of repairing history uh, come into view, as it does at the end of the poem. And that's for Samson Agonistes. That's about one of the least, uh, one of the more... um, clownish and less admirable figures in the Old Testament, Samson, mm-hmm. although he's also an heroic figure. And the, Milton clearly in the poem identifies himself in many ways with Samson, and not just, with, not just with respect to blindness, but also with respect to being a failed revolutionary, to being a man of immense gifts and talents, not physical strength in Milton's case, but his intellectual strength is an analogy of Samson's physical strength. And he's thinking in that poem, how is it possible to how is it possible to serve God and serve the transcendental principles of history uh, under circumstances that seem unpropitious. Mm-hmm. And in both of those you have, I mean, extended dialogue. Uh, you have exchanges of words between characters far more than you have the grand epic setting that 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 so sets paradise lost apart so it, it, it's one of those things that you know I, I again your book brought to my attention some of the very particular features that sets apart those last two poems from the one that everyone knows best 
Yes, I think you're especially right on that, on that, um, for that particular reason, which has to do with uh, narrative situation. Paradise Lost is a great narrative poem. Most of the mm-hmm. time, it's in voice we're hearing, and so it's the verse is far more organ-like and homogenized in Paradise Lost. The the periods, the the vast sentences are longer, and there's an extraordinary synthesis of sound, and many of the rougher edges are are smoothed off just because of the needs of narrative. But Paradise Regained and Samson Agonistes are both much more verbal and talking poems, and there's much more verbal combat in both of them. Mm -hmm. So we hear much more punchy rhythms in the lines of Paradise Regained and Samson Agonistes. It's mm-hmm. why these poems would be better would be better better appreciated uh, just because the old engaged voice of Milton comes back, something of the old fighting poet. Right, right. In those two works. And, I, and I'll just say for the benefit of our listeners, the analysis of the line structure and the accent patterns and the hammering rhythms of Samson Agonistes in this book is not to be missed. Unfortunately, we're running up on time, so I'll just tell our listeners, go buy this book. It'll be worth the buying. It'll be worth the reading. But right now, since we are running up on time, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. As we depart, what do you want our listeners thinking about Milton, poetry, temptation, obedience, or whatever else? Take as long as you'd like. All right. Thank you very much. Um... Well, you're a Christian humanist radio station, and perhaps, therefore, I should say something about Christ, uh, also in the spirit of uh, hospitality and gratitude for your hospitality. Jesus Christ, not the Son of God as we see him in Paradise Lost, but the man, Jesus Christ, becomes the most absorbing figure for Milton in Paradise Regained. You, you and your listeners will probably know a famous book by Albert Schweitzer, called The Search for the Historical Genius, <laughs> excuse me, The Search for the Historical Jesus, mm-hmm. in which Schweitzer debunked the 19th century fascination with discovering a Jesus who would be more real because more historical than the Jesus that we get in the scriptures. Because the Jesus we get in the scriptures, as Schweitzer points out, and everybody knows, it's a very fractured image, like a cubist painting. Mm-hmm. But in Paradise Regained, Milton takes what we know from the scriptures, and he's no illusions about historical reconstruction, and sets out on a quest for this, not for the historical Jesus, but for the psychological Jesus. What was it like inside Jesus' mind? There's much to say on this point, but I think it's fair to summarize it by saying that Milton gives us a portrait of a man without anger, and above all, without fear and hence a psychologically perfect man. That's the humanism of Milton meeting up with his Christianity. That's why in the closing lines of the book, I imagine Milton and Jesus together in the Judean and Transjordan desert after Jesus has been tempted by Satan, as described in Paradise Regained. This isn't mere fancy on my part, because Milton certainly did imagine himself on every scene he described. But what I see at the end of the book is Jesus going north to Galilee to his ministry and his passion. They part at a crossroads, however, and Milton heads southwest towards Gaza, where Samson is imprisoned, blind, and in chains. We're all of us, of course, blind and in chains, 
and we're all of us striving to be free and courageous and noble. It's hard to escape one and harder to arrive at the other, but that's what it means to be human. Gordon Teske, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you and with your audience. Listeners, thank you for downloading and writing along with us. The book is The Poetry of John Milton. It's from Harvard University Press, and you'll find a link to it on the show notes on ChristianHumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.